0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. As older adults age, more are seeking legal assistance to better understand their legal rights and ensure protections for themselves, their caregivers, and families. This need has brought about a specialized area of legal practice called elder law, a broad field encompassing different legal issues older adults face as they get older. Today, my guest is Paul Barnett, elder law attorney and principal with Manning, Murray, Barnett, and Baxter. He's going to explain what older adults and their loved ones should know when hiring an elder law attorney, and he'll also discuss the wide range of legal matters affecting older or disabled persons, which elder law attorneys handle for their clients. So welcome, Paul, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, good morning, Cheryl. Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, well, Paul... I gave a little bit of a hint as to what elder law is, but we, since that's exactly what you are, explain that more in detail and help us understand a little more about how elder law differs from general practice.
1: Well, Cheryl, that's a a great question. Um, And I heard you use the word a specialist. And there are, there are, there is actually a certification that a elder law lawyer can get to be a certified elder law uh, practitioner. But I, I hesitate um, to use that word because, in the field of elder law, I don't think it's possible for an elder law attorney to be a master of all the areas that they confront. There are certainly sub areas that you can become a specialist in, like. Medicaid planning um, or estate planning or guardianships and these these are sort of sub areas of elder law but elder law places um, its emphasis on uh, issues and not always necessarily legal ones but issues that a person faces as they get older and with the baby boomer population you know the fastest growing, subgroup of uh, elder persons, I think, is the 85-plus population. So we really have this huge segment of our population that's getting older and older, and they're facing a variety of issues that go along with that. Um, And I would say for most of my clients who have elder law issues, Either from the client themselves or from their family, you know, that their biggest concern is their quality of life, how they manage as they get older and dealing with what's often, you know, significant disabilities, and how do they pay for their care, and how do they protect themselves from exploitation um, or, you know, abusive situations. And they're much more concerned with these issues than they are necessarily with what happens to their estate after they die. So, to me, an elder law practitioner is integrating legal planning and problem solving into a larger personal, uh, a larger picture of personal estate planning needs, um, with a big picture, holistic approach. So that requires to do that um, the elder law practitioner developing um, the ability to be an interdisciplinary planning attorney. So what does that mean? That means that if an elder person comes to my office with a set of issues, there may be some legal issues that I can do myself whether it's the drafting of wills, powers of attorneys, living trust, or a discussion about public benefits planning using Medicaid to pay for long-term care. These are certainly legal issues that an elder law practitioner should be well versed in. But they also may have issues arising in the home that aren't legal, but they're very practical ones, and they're not aware of how to deal with it. You know. Uh, for example, you know, I had a client who <clears throat> was re- really had no family and wanted to live in her home, uh, but she couldn't care for herself there. And she didn't want to go to a retirement home or their nursing home. And she wasn't quite able, uh, uh, able to figure out how to pull this off. The local county adult protective services was getting increasingly concerned about this person's, you know, um, being forgetful, not taking medications they needed to, falling. In the, and, and that is a horror story you hear about or I hear about regularly about people who will fall in their homes and can't get up and are found days later and tragically sometimes after they've died. So we worked with this client to um, connect with a local care planning agency whose job is to uh, assess a elder person's needs, uh, what their physical limitations are, what their capabilities are, and then design a plan to meet their objectives, which is, in this case, was to stay at home. So through this care planning agency, um, they were able to bring in aides to help her at first just um, a few hours a day with meal preparation, light housekeeping, um, medication management. And then as time went on, they increasingly got into the home uh, more and more. But it helped her achieve that goal of staying at home, improving her quality of life, because that's what she wanted, and her feelings of independence. Um and that is not using a traditional legal tool to solve that problem. And that's why, you know, as an, an, a good elder law practitioner, will have, in a sense, uh, either alliances or partnerships with a number of other professionals in the community that can assist in meeting this older person's needs.
0: That's really helpful because obviously you gave a wonderful example of, how you as an elder law attorney assisted a particular client for an issue that relates to growing older. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions about contacting and working with an elder law attorney. The first being, at what age should a person contact an elder law attorney and and establish a relationship? And Tell us a little bit more about that and how elder law attorneys bill for their services so that people would begin to understand, well, what what should I be thinking about as I get to this age, which you're going to tell us about more.
1: At what age should a person contact an, uh, an elder law attorney is very specific to the case. In some sense, the word elder law is, is limiting to at least the perception by the public, because if you, if you look at what elder law practitioners do, what you'll find out is they're helping a broad spectrum of the population. These are the attorneys that know how to do or know how to handle issues related with disability, and disability arises at any age or can arise in any age and you know in any one year the, the risk of incapacity to a person is greater than death so an elder law practitioner may be dealing with somebody who's in their 40s who perhaps they suffered a, a stroke and they need nursing home care or somebody in their 60s who doesn't consider themselves elderly but now they have early onset dementia and you know the, uh, the, the family doesn't know how to deal with the variety of issues that are associated with that. Uh, so it's not, to me, it's, it's not that you're elderly per se that should define when you see an attorney. I would say big picture, everybody, in my opinion, needs to have a power of attorney for finances and a medical directive for healthcare decision-making that it doesn't matter what age you are, or, you know, as long as you're over 18 um, or whether you have any disabilities or not, if you don't have those two documents in place and something happens to you, and I see it happen all the time where somebody younger didn't think they would need that or just didn't give it any thought, finds themselves in a situation um, through a car accident or some type of accident where they're not able to care for themselves and they're not able to sign those documents. So the remedy in that situation is to go to court and have a guardian and conservator appointed. And that is uh, an unnecessary and expensive and time-consuming process that's easily avoided by having these two documents in place. So at a minimum, I would say everybody should at least be contacting an estate planning attorney to get those documents in place. And uh, having a will or a trust is a sort of a separate issue, and that has to do, obviously, with what happens to your estate when you die. If you're a family member and you're noticing mom or dad or a sibling or somebody starting to have concerning issues, either with their physical or, or uh, even their uh, like impairments of, the, of cognition or memory or decision-making, then, of course, you want to address that from a healthcare perspective and get to the right doctors to see what's going on. But you, while that person still has the capacity, you now want to at least be engaging with a um, an estate planning attorney uh, to get those documents in place and likely a will and a trust, so that the, that the family, uh, at least a family member or a friend or a trusted advisor, can step in to manage that person's affairs if they're not able to do it anymore. Um, so, you know, that could happen at any age to a person where they're beginning to show diminished capacity. Um, if you wait too long and the person's not able to sign documents because they lack the capacity to sign them, then it's too late.
0: And you are really mentioning some very important topics, as I said, that, Um, may occur in the life of the older adult or their caregiver, uh, the caregiver is worried about them or the, the family member. If somebody is listening right now and says, wow, this is kind of what's happening in our family, where can people look as to the resources to find an experienced elder law attorney. If they want to hire someone, as you suggested, uh, these various uh, situations, what questions would they want to ask an elder law attorney? Are they pertinent to the situation of the older adult? And conversely, what questions you, for example, if you're talking with a new client, what would you be asking the older adult and their family if, if they want to hire an elder law attorney? I just want our listeners to understand if they're ready to do this or think they are ready to do this, what do they need to know?
1: Well, if in identifying, I think, any professional, you, you should do your research. And, you know, if you, if you can get a referral from... Um, somebody that has had an experience with a good elder law attorney, that's a great place to start. So you can ask around to uh, family members, friends, neighbors, even work colleagues for uh, anybody that has dealt with or had experience with a good elder law attorney and start with, with that. There's also a number of, um, Neighborhood listservs out there where people post um, or answer questions like that. Um, You know, most people, when they're looking for a professional, want somebody that's fairly close to them geographically. Um, You know, so it's not really enough to find somebody, you know, that's good if they're 30 miles away because you probably don't want to travel 30 miles. Um, So starting with, um, you know, people in your neighborhood, um, whether it's through the neighbors or friends or um, the listservs, I think is a great place to start. Um, if you have a, a lawyer already, um, you can. Uh, lawyers tend to know the other good lawyers in the area. So that's a good place uh, to turn to. Um, often financial advisors uh, work with elder law practitioners and can give uh, recommendations and referrals. If um, you want to do, uh, or you can't locate somebody that way, there are some tools out there that you can utilize, such as the. There's a uh, organization I belong to called the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, NALA. They maintain on their website a directory of elder law attorneys um, by state, by city. Um, So you can go there and identify attorneys in particular geographic areas and even get some sense as to what areas they're sort of holding themselves out in. Um, There's also uh, lawyers.com. Which is uh, a professional, if you will, directory put out by Martindale Hubble. They, they're not particular to elder law attorneys, but they um, are a helpful directory in identifying attorneys by practice area. Uh, so those are some of the places I would start with.
0: And when you interview someone or a family, are there certain questions that you ask uh, that our listeners should be writing down to make sure that if I bring nothing else to someone that I want to talk with, I should have this kind of information to, to help you better understand whether it's a good fit?
1: Well, absolutely. Um, there, there are uh, questions. You know, sometimes people set up appointments with me um, and identify the issue that they think is their issue when it really isn't their issue. So that's the first uh, step. Whenever I meet with somebody, is identifying what the real issue is uh, that they're trying to solve. Um, <clears throat> you know, for example, the the woman I mentioned before earlier about wanting to stay in her home. The reason that she came to me in the first place was because Adult Protective Services was bothering her and she wanted me to do something about it. And the answer wasn't fighting Adult Protective Services. The answer was getting her set up in her home in a way that made it safe and um, uh, appropriate for her to stay there, which then calmed down Adult Protective Services. Um, So, when I'm meeting um, with an individual and sometimes it's with family members there, I'm always assessing the capacity of, the, of my client, the elderly person, um, in terms of their ability to make decisions, um, to sign legal documents. I look for indicators of control, of inappropriate control by family members, or you know, with the, uh, there's a legal term called undue influence. Sometimes you see that where one family member or a friend or neighbor is seeking to sort of gain a financial advantage over this person, either during their lifetime or at their death, and because of the person, the elderly person's diminished capacity. And dependence upon this person, they are more inclined to favor them than they otherwise would. Um, so I'm always on the lookout uh, for, for that kind of issue or uh, even more uh, common problems like conflicts within the family. You know, if a person comes to me and they want to do an estate plan and they've got a um, several children and they don't all get along. Um, that's an important factor to know both in terms of who they pick to manage their affairs um, because you certainly wouldn't want children who are in conflict with each other to be appointed uh, together if they can't make decisions together. And you also don't want to put one child in a power position um over the other children. So that has to really be thought through and managed. Um, And then there's, you know, the more general questions we always ask clients about their financial situation, their family situation, what their goals are, what they want to achieve. Um, And, you you know, those are the sort of the two types of... um, or categories of questions, if you will, that I would ask a client.
0: And I'm also thinking, I wanted to ask one more question before we take a break here. If someone is on a fixed income or the family is uh, also has limited financial resources, is there any, what what would you tell them as to how you bill for uh, your services or are there different methods for doing so?
1: Well, there is uh, different ways to bill. Um, in our firm, we we do our estate planning projects on a flat fee, uh, which has a range associated with it and <clears throat> includes on the doc. It, it depends on the documents we're preparing. Um, the if you get into issues outside of the traditional estate planning process, where, you know if it's dealing with, uh, say, filing a guardianship or advising a client on, you know, Medicaid planning or other elder law type issues, then it becomes um, uh, we would bill by the hour for that. Um, other firms do it differently. You know, I've seen other lawyers just charge a. Hourly from the get go for everything, or uh, depending on what they're doing. Like if you're, uh, I know some lawyers who do a lot of Medicaid planning, and they charge a flat fee for the whole project. So those are the sort of the three ways I've seen um, in terms of how clients are billed.
0: Okay. Well, that's very helpful and provides us with an overview of what we need to know about elder law attorneys. And uh, so we're going to take a short break right now in case you tuned in late. We're talking with Paul Barnett, who is an elder law attorney. He's also a principal with Manning, Murray, Barnett and Baxter. And you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking with Paul Barnett, who is an elder law attorney with and a principal with Manning, Murray, Barnett, and Baxter. And we learned in the first half of this interview what we need to know about hiring an elder law attorney. And Paul, during our the first half of the interview, you talked a lot about um, some of the legal areas that elder law includes. But did we miss anything? Are there other legal areas that our listeners should know about in case they might have need of, of services of an elder law uh, attorney and they want to learn more about? Well,
1: uh, yeah, as, you know, as we talked at the beginning of, uh, of the hour, the, a legal issue that affects an elderly person is an elder law problem and that can arise in any number of different situations i mean you could be in a a say a healthcare facility and the hospital might decide uh, that you're not capable of managing your affairs and they want to file for guardianship that's a that's an elder law issue um, you could be looking at entering a... Um, some type of uh, um, long-term care facility. Um, There's certainly financial considerations associated with that, which elder law attorneys can help with, um, either from public benefits like getting Medicaid to help pay for it, or just advising the client on their uh, uh, overall financial situation, the tax implications, uh, and the tax deductions available to them as they enter it, the different types of long term care planning facilities, long term care facilities are out there um, because there's a variety of different models. Um, there's uh, issues associated when a person retires with Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. If you're a veteran, there's a whole field of veteran benefits laws, and I would suggest most elder law attorneys don't practice veterans' benefits, but it's a significant benefit if you are a combat veteran. And of course, the traditional estate planning is always part of an elder law attorney's practice. End-of-life planning, abuse or exploitation of older people. The management of your affairs, that can become an elder law issue. Like if you don't, if somebody's mismanaging your affairs that you entrusted, or if you don't have anybody to manage, a lot of elder law attorneys will uh, help act as your agent or your trustee and help manage your affairs. Um, so again, as I said, it's there's a variety of issues out there that the elder law attorney needs to at least be proficient in and be able to identify the issues. And even if they're not able to solve that problem for you, they can at least identify the issue and direct you where to go.
0: I was also wondering if, drilling down a little bit, I mean, all of these do uh, affect the whole realm of something called caregiving. And Sadly, we're seeing that the the costs of caregiving are going up all the time, I think in part because sometimes there aren't enough people who are providing those caregiving services. Is that something that you help families wrestle with um, in terms of finding resources to uh, to provide that caregiving, either for the families themselves or, or some other kind of services. I was just wondering if that's a, uh, an area that you've got some examples uh, to share.
1: So when you refer to caregiving, are you talking about in the home?
0: Both caregiving in the home or outside the home in some kind of a facility. Um, I'm just wanting to talk about the, the rising costs and, and how that impacts on the families especially for some example, someone who has Alzheimer's disease and is going to require caregiving for years and years to come. And um, how do they handle that?
1: Yeah, well, that, that is a is a big concern and question I get a lot from clients. You know, how do I pay for this? <clears throat> it's either how do I pay for it if it happens or it is happening, how do I pay for it? And everybody's case is different. If you're if you're very limited in what resources you have, um, the most likely answer is going to be Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid is a, a program that is for uh, – well, it's now – there's a couple aspects to it. There's a health insurance aspect, too, of it but I'm not talking about that. There's a part of the Medicaid benefit that pays for long-term care services. And the traditional Medicaid benefit pays for a person's uh, cost of care in a 24-hour nursing facility. Um, In order to qualify for Medicaid, the person cannot have more than $2,000 and all of their income, except for about $40 a month, is paid first to the nursing home, and then Medicaid makes up the difference. Now, sometimes people say, I don't want the government to take all my money when I go in a nursing home. Well, that's not what happens. The government's giving you money, they're not taking your money. The, the problem is for people that have low, you know, don't have enough income or resources to pay for a nursing facility, is there's a deficiency between what the nursing home charges and what this person's resources are. So Medicaid says if you meet this criteria where you need nursing home level of care and don't have enough resources, we'll make up that difference. So um, that is a benefit that's available to people that are generally 65 and older, or if they have a disability, they can be less than 65. Uh, There is a movement to try to make that benefit available more so in the home and even in assisted living facilities. Right now, assisted living, to try to get Medicaid to pay for assisted living is almost impossible. It's uh, called the Medicaid Waiver Program, and there's just very limited beds out there because it pays so little so most facilities won't accept it there is a program that will pay up to eight hours a day for an aide to come into uh, your home um, seven days a week uh, if that person would and they would qualify again under the same medicaid rules um, including that they need nursing home level of care uh, but If they can be managed at home with this eight hours a day, then you can stay in your home. Now, sometimes families utilize that to supplement care they're already providing. Um, If you're on the other end of the spectrum and you have uh, a great deal of wealth, then long-term care costs are really not as much of an issue uh, because you can afford To pay for the cost of in-home care or the cost of a uh, nursing facility, and all those costs are tax deductible, which often frees up some more money for the person because at that point, you're often not having to pay taxes, Um, or they can use their resources to sort of plan ahead by going into what's called a continuing care facility. Um, where um, in this area we've got a number of them like the Goodwin House uh, is an example of that or um, where they will commit to you to take care of you for the rest of your life, but you have to come in reasonably healthy. You have to come in independent, live in an apartment, and you've got to pay a bunch of money up front in each Care facilities different, and how much money it's usually in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, and then you pay on top of that a monthly fee. But the promise is that if you, as your care needs increase, if you need assisted living or even nursing home level of care, they will care for you even if you run out of money. So that can be reassuring to a lot of people. Um, it's a big upfront cost. But it also takes away that fear people have, I'm going to run out of money.
0: And one thing I wanted to also ask you is is that if a person comes to you at a younger age seeking advice about long-term care insurance, what do you tell them?
1: Well, long-term care insurance is is a type of insurance that will pay up to a certain amount of money, usually per day to care for a per- person either in their home or an assisted living facility or in a nursing home. Those policies were very popular when they were first introduced. and But what happened in the long-term care insurance industry is they made a big miscalculation and way undercharged the premiums. And they ended up having to pay out a lot more money than they took in. So that caused the whole industry to sort of... Um, and you know, regroup itself. A lot of the insurance companies got out of that business. The ones that are left, the premiums are much more expensive now. Of course, it's cheaper the younger you are. Um, you know, so if you're in your 40s, I don't generally recommend people start at that age. But it would be very cheap. But you've got to pay those premiums essentially for the rest of your life. Um, usually by the time you're in your late 50s or 60s, if that product appeals to you, that's the time to do it. Or if you retire from a job that has that benefit, most don't, but the federal employees do. That's certainly something to look at. But there's a lot, I see a lot more people <clears throat> now gravitating towards hybrid long-term care insurance type products. And a hybrid product is like a combination of life insurance and long-term care insurance and maybe even a investment component to it, where it's this sort of you you can either pay premiums on it or you can give a bunch of money up front, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, and then you get a clearly you know schedule of benefits if you do need long-term care. You can there could be a cash value associated with it and a death benefit. So that seems to appeal to a lot, a lot more people because there's more certainty to it. There's a um, clear understanding of what the cost is going to be to them. And there's a clear benefit.
0: Okay. Well, I want to get into some of these issues that I know that you work with clients so that we make sure that we cover them. You've already talked a little bit about guardianship. And conservatorship. Explain to w- what is each of those, and how do they how do they differ, and, and what are the duties of each?
1: A in Virginia, those words have different meanings. A guardian is an is a individual that a court and only a court appoints to make personal and health care related decisions for somebody who's been deemed to be incapacitated. Um, Whereas a conservator is somebody who's been appointed by the court for an incapacitated person to manage that person's finances. So it could be the same person or they could be different. Other states um, and historically, I think all states at one point used the word guardian or um, comité, and didn't use the word conservator. And it was sort of just an all in one job. If you were appointed, you had control of the person's affairs, financial and healthcare. care. But um, several decades ago, there was a recognition that that may not always make sense. And so even in the states that maintain this use of the word guardian um, for both jobs, we'll, they'll say guardian of the person or guardian of the estate. So it depends on which state you're in, but Virginia uses that those two words, guardian and conservator.
0: And how does the law protect the rights of a person who needs either a guardian or conservators? What do they need to know about that, and is there a certain time frame in which the guardianship or conservatorship is in effect?
1: There is protections. There's a lot of protections. Um, It starts with the filing of a petition alleging that somebody's incapacitated, and the court appoints a local attorney to investigate and report back to the court. There's got to be medical documentation that this individual is incapacitated to the point where they're just not capable of, of receiving and evaluating information effectively enough to respond to their you know, essential needs and or to manage their property. And that has to be proven by clear and convincing evidence, which is a higher standard than in civil cases, which is just a, more than 50% of preponderance. So if all that criterion is met, the court then appoints a uh, the guardian and conservatory. These two individuals really are extensions of the court and remain subject to the supervision of the court. So the court will require from both of them uh, reports, typically annually, saying in the case of the guardian, tell us what you've been doing, guardian. <laughs> Have you been visiting your person? What are their needs? Where are they? Um, what's changed? Um, do you think the guardianship is still needed? And you know uh, these sorts of questions. And that report is filed with the local department of uh, social services. And if it is not filed, then um, action is pursued by the court against that person either to get them to file it or even potentially to remove them. The conservator has more reporting requirements because they're dealing with this individual's money. When the court appoints them, there's an initial determination of of the value of this person's estate. So if they have, let's say, $500,000, the court will appoint a bond or require a bond from the conservator of at least that amount, could be more. And then when that person qualifies as conservator, they have to actually post surety on the bond, which is done through a local insurance company that guarantees their performance. So if the conservator would run off at the money, there is actually an insurance company there to make the person's estate whole. And then the court requires um, accountings from the conservator and says, Tell us how you've been spending the money. And it's a very detailed accounting down to the penny. And, you know, these are scrutinized, they're audited, and there's determinations made that the money's being spent for the benefit of the person. You know, it's not being spent on the conservator's, you know, um, vacations or <laughs> gambling trips and this sorts of thing. So, Uh, There's a lot of accountability in Virginia for guardians and conservators.
0: Okay. Another area that I know that elder law attorneys are involved with are constructing wills and trusts. So talk about that. Why is that important for older adults and their families to to do that? Start with that.
1: Uh, Whenever I work uh, or develop an estate plan for a client or clients, you know, the main objective that I have as their attorney is to meet their goals. So, you know, we collect the uh, uh, information about the individual, or the couple's finances, what assets they have, what liabilities they have, what real properties they own, um, you know, whether they have retirement accounts, Um, or own businesses, you know, all these sorts of questions. And then we discuss with them what their goals are. You know, very common, it's it's that I want to leave it to my spouse if they're married, uh, and then to my children, or if there's no children, then it's to family, friends, charities. So we then discuss whether they want a... Will to do accomplish all this, or benefit, or um, using a will and beneficiary designations? One of the common things that most people want to avoid, or or at least they want their loved ones to avoid, is probate. Probate is the process of when a person dies of of going to the court and saying, "Hey, this person's died." We need to gain control of the money and pay it out to the people who are, who are entitled to inherit it, either through a will, and of course, if there's no will, then the laws of Virginia say this is how the money is going to be paid out, and it, it always goes to the closest relatives first. So the court will then appoint either an executor, which is somebody that's been nominated in a will, or if there's no will, they'll appoint an administrator, who then has to file inventories, they have to get bonded typically with the court, and then they've got to file accountings and essentially get a court approval for everything they do. And along the way, you're paying a lot of filing fees, court fees, probate fees, probate taxes, and it can add up significantly. It also takes uh, you know, some time to work through all these things. So most people at the end of the day say, I don't want my loved ones to have to go through that process. So how can we avoid it? Well, you you can avoid it a couple of ways. One is through direct beneficiary designations. You know, so for example, if if you're, say, a widow and you've got one child and you own a house and you own a, a, say, a a bank account and a brokerage account, you can set that up without utilizing a trust or a will simply by having the person say, I designate my child as the beneficiary of my bank account and of my brokerage account. And then you can do a tr- what's called a transfer on death deed for the real property. So you're saying at my death, this real property transfers to my child. In that case, there would would not be a need to probate the estate, so you wouldn't necessarily even need to use the will. You would still have a will just to make clear who your beneficiaries are in case for whatever reason those beneficiary designations didn't work out. But if you've got a more common or more complex situation where you've got multiple children and grandchildren and assets, then a trust starts to make more sense because to avoid probate is going to require those assets passing if you want to achieve your goals and to some kind of vehicle that says this is what happens when I die. Nobody knows what the landscape is going to look like when they die. So we're always planning for contingencies. You know, if you knew So I tell clients, if I knew exactly what was going to happen when you die, who was going to be alive, what you owned, you know, I could design the perfect plan right now, which would be easy and cheap, but we don't know that. So we've got a plan for contingencies. Uh, For example, if a child predeceases you and they have grandchildren, if you rely simply on beneficiary designations for your retirement accounts or your life insurance policies or you're, you're going to potentially cut out those grandchildren. Most people don't want to cut out uh, the grandchildren if their child predeceases. They want the predeceased child's share to go to the grandchildren. So that's you would address that in a trust. And the trust is, is really a vehicle that would hold assets and say, at my death, this is where they go, and I'm going to appoint a trustee who's going to administer this trust at my death. Um, which could be a child or, you know, a trusted advisor. Uh, But a trust is very helpful then in, in avoiding probate. It's also very helpful in helping to protect against exploitation, if you will, you know, as a person, especially if you've got a single person or a widow or a widower and they're sort of diminished capacity. If you put assets inside of a trust, it's much harder for somebody to come in and exploit that person and grab those assets. It's easier if they're outside the trust. So it also has a real benefit to the person while they're alive.
0: Okay, and we're getting close to the end. And I wanted you to to define the difference between non-durable power of attorney, the durable power of attorney, and special or limited power of attorney. And then another question would be the medical power of attorney. If you can just give our listeners some understanding of that and then maybe where they can get more information. But I wanted to be sure that you covered that quickly.
1: A medical power of attorney is uh, what we call in Virginia an advanced medical directive, where you're saying, if I'm not capable of making my own medical decisions, then this is what I want to happen. And that's where you would say, I want uh, say, I want Cheryl to be my agent for healthcare decision-making. I would say that in my medical directive. Can also address uh, end-of-life issues there if, if that's um, what you want to do. A power of attorney is where a person is giving legal authority to another individual to do some specific act that they themselves could do. So it could be limited or a specific power of attorney. Like very often, if somebody is selling real estate, maybe they live out of town or even out of the country, um, they they need somebody local to handle the closing. So they'll call me and they say, Paul, will you be my uh, agent to handle the closing for me? And I say, sure. So we'll draw up a specific power of attorney that gives me the authority to attend closing and do everything they could do at the closing. But that's that's all I can do with it. Once that closing happens, it's done, there's, there's no further use to that specific power of attorney. A general power of attorney is a very broad and powerful document because it's designed to give the agent all the powers over individuals, um, and not just financial, but really all areas of contract, of tax, uh, dealing with tax authorities, um, financial institutions, life insurance companies, um, changing your address at the post office. Um, it's a very powerful document. And it's effective when you sign it, unless you condition it on some event, such as your incapacity, or, um, um, and it's also only effective for so long as the principal has c- capacity, and, or, and which is not what most people want. They say, no, no, I want this to be uh, used when I don't have capacity. you say, well, then we need to make it a durable general power of attorney because you need to put this special language in there that says this power of attorney will survive my incapacity. Without that in there, then it's just a general power of attorney.
0: Okay. Well, any final comments that you'd like to make in terms of being an elder law attorney or things that people should know, Paul?
1: If you want to learn more about elder law, I would, I would recommend you go to the uh, NALA website, the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys website. You can learn more about elder law there. Um, of course, there's, there's all sorts of books out there, too, that you can buy. I think one of the easy reads I've seen is a short and happy guide to elder law. If you want a more technical or legal approach, there's one called Elder Law in a Nutshell. Um, I think those are good resources if you want to learn more about this area and elder law attorneys.
0: And your company's website, your firm's website?
1: Well, absolutely. You can come to our website as well. It's at mmbb.law. That will take you to us.
0: Okay. Well, I want to thank Paul Barnett, elder law attorney and principal with Manning, Murray, Barnett, and Baxter. Thank you for joining me today, Paul.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Cheryl. I really enjoyed it.
0: To learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website at agingmattersonline.com. And at this site, access all of our Aging Matters radio podcasts and our TV show episodes. Our podcasts, of course, are broadcast on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. You can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember... Age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.